You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. Christian Smith is an American sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. And in 2005, while he was at UNC Chapel Hill, he wrote a landmark book called Soul Searching. And his team, they interviewed over 3,000 adolescents to see what they believed about God. And as they conducted all these interviews and listened and compiled and synthesized all of that research, five recurring beliefs emerged. And granted, they were not all part of the same religion. They just interviewed them to see if there was anything kind of connecting all of these beliefs together. And as they did, they, they synthesized those five, uh, these five beliefs. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world's religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, to summarize these beliefs and give them a name, the researchers coined the term moralistic therapeutic Deism. I'm just curious, anyone ever heard that phrase before? Kevin, I'm surprised. <laughs> well, we've actually uh, used it here before. Uh, it, it's one of those things that I think is important to, to, to hear and to, and, to, and to put in your vocabulary because it has become really kind of the, 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 uh, like the, the civic religion of American uh, Christianity. It's, it's moralistic because it's about behavior change, not heart change. So there is concern about morals. It's therapeutic because it puts me and my feelings at the center of the universe. And it's deism because it pictures a God who is far off, not near. He exists kind of when I want him to, and I get to define him. Christian Smith explains in his book, this amorphous faith, is about belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, who created the world, who defines our moral order, but not one who is particularly or personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. So friends, this God of moralistic therapeutic deism, he's not concerned about your sin. He's not. This God does not challenge the self-centered obsession of our postmodern age. He's perfectly happy for you to put you at the center of your universe. This God doesn't really care about what you believe, doctrine and dogma. This God doesn't offend anyone. Everyone likes this God. This God is extremely tolerable. And friends, this God is completely ignorable. You can live most of your life without any thought or reference to him. This God is, generally speaking, indifferent to the daily affairs of our life. And this God exists to serve me. When I need him, I call upon him. Friends, this God is the product of human definition. And in short, this God is no God at all. Since the earliest days in the garden, humanity has tried to define what is good and evil We have tried to redefine and refashion God in our own image because, quite frankly, we want to decide for ourselves who God is and what he is like. This morning, Exodus 3 will say, no, you don't define God. God defines God. He is self-defining. He determines and announces who he will be and what he will do. And when we let the text of Exodus 3 confront us this morning, we will find that the God of Genesis 3 is both more terrifying and holy than we dare to think, and at the same time, paradoxically, more loving and committed to us 
than we could ever have imagined. So this morning, as we work our way through Exodus 3, we are going to do a little doctrine, a little theology, five truths of who God is. So far in the book, God has seemed relatively absent, and now in Exodus 3, it's a master class in who God is. So in verses 1 to 6, we're going to see that God is a God of glory. God is a God of glory. In 7 to 10, we'll see that God is a God of deliverance. In verses 11 and 12, we'll see that God is a God of presence, nearness. Verses 13 to 15, we'll see that God is the God who is. And in 16 to 22, we'll see that God is the God of promise. Exodus 3 will invite us this morning to ask, who is God? And he will answer that question. And at the same time, Exodus 3 will challenge us to allow the truth and goodness and beauty of Scripture to speak a better word than what we could speak ourselves. So let's start in verse 1 together and see that God is a God of glory. Here again now the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, when you go from chapter 2 to chapter 3, 40 years have elapsed. We get this timeline of Moses' life from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. And so at this point, Moses has been a refuge in Midian, working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Jethro. Last chapter, we found out that Jethro also has another name, Ruel, same guy. The Lord wanted a shepherd to one day lead his people... And so the Lord uses this time of actual shepherding to prepare him for his future leadership role. On this particular day, Moses has led his flock to the western side of the mountain of Horeb. Now Horeb may sound unfamiliar to you, but it goes by another name, which is really common um, in the Bible. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings. Everyone has like three or four names. Places have like three or four names. Same kind of thing. Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. And that now may sound very familiar to you. This will be the same mountain where Moses will lead the people of God when they leave Egypt. This is the same mountain where God will give the law and the Ten Commandments. Verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of, the out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said... I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said. And he said, here I am. Now, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the bush. And if you're tracking from the beginning of the Bible, this is the third time that we've seen this angel of the Lord figure. The first time the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar in her time of distress and tells her that she will have uh, many descendants, that her son Ishmael will not die and he will be uh, kind of the father of a multitude of nations as well. And the second time the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham on Mount Moriah to stop him from uh, the sacrifice of Isaac and to provide a substitute. And now this figure appears to Moses. This figure will continue to make more appearances throughout the Old Testament. And it's important for us to understand that this figure is not the same as a typical angel. See, angels are created spiritual beings. They're messengers who go to perform missions for God. They're, they're sent out by him. They are never to be worshipped. In fact, if people do try to start worshipping, they, they tell them, you shouldn't do that. I'm not worthy of worship. The Bible will never refer to an angel as God himself. There's always careful language to distinguish the angels from who God is. They are, in other words, utterly distinct. They are not co-equal with God. They are created beings. And yet, every time we see this, the angel of the Lord figure, we notice something remarkably different. Here's what we notice. First, that this figure is distinct from God, yet at the same time, God. He is God made visible and accessible. Notice in Exodus 3 that this figure in the bush, this angel of the Lord, is called the angel of the Lord. It's called the Lord and it's called God. 
The angel of the Lord appears to him from the bush. And then it says, and then the Lord spoke to him and God spoke to him. And it's all referring to this same figure. All three terms used to describe this one figure in the bush. Later in the book of Exodus, we'll get to it as we work our way there. But uh, as Israel is delivered out of slavery, it says that the Lord led Israel by a pillar of fire and cloud. So as they are making their way to Mount Sinai, there's a pillar of cloud during the day. And there's a, a pillar of fire at night. And sometimes, just interchangeably, this pillar of fire and cloud is called the angel of the Lord. And sometimes it's just called the Lord. You see how they're being used interchangeably. So again, this figure is distinct from God, yet equal with God and also God. And what this is going to do is create in our minds this puzzling category that is later fulfilled in the New Testament when we are introduced to Jesus. Do you remember John chapter 1 that tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or quite literally tabernacled among us so that God would become visible and accessible to us. The word made flesh is God becoming visible and accessible to us. That's why in our catechism we speak about the full divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is distinct from God and yet he is equal with God because he is also God. And when we put all of this together, you take all of the data of the biblical story, we come to this conclusion that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate, meaning before the incarnation, a pre-incarnate appearing of the second person of the Trinity who will later take on flesh. In other words, this, this second person of the Trinity who is fully God will add a second nature to his person he will be fully God and fully man that is why we can make sense of things like in Jude chapter 5 Jude writes this now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe for Jude he has no problem going Jesus led the people of God out of Egypt why Jude is reading his bible Jude is thinking clearly about who Jesus is and what he knows about him now as this fully God and fully human deliverer. And he's like, oh, that must be who the angel of the Lord was, this, this, this co-equal yet distinct from God, God, who led the people of Israel out of slavery. Now, there's so much more that could be said about the angel of the Lord, the incarnation, full divinity, and humanity of Jesus, how two natures can reside in one person, this whole reality of the Trinity. And believe me, nothing would thrill me more than to do all of that. But for the sake of time, we've got to keep moving. Now, Moses has been in this arid, dry wilderness location of Midian for, for about 40 years. Think about it. If you had, had, had shepherded in this one area for 40 years, you would know the terrain. You, like, if I showed up there, it would just look like a random uh, place with bushes and trees. But he knows this area well. He's traveled it for 40 years. And it's likely that in his day, he has seen different bushes spontaneously combust because of the arid, dry climate, because of the heat. But every time this has happened... He's, when, when he's seen a bush catch fire, there's been both combustion and consummation. Every time he has seen a bush catch on fire, eventually the bush is consumed. In other words, we, we know this. When something is on fire, it burns and it is consumed. Eventually, the, the, the material decomposes and it, and it breaks down into a pile of ashes, right? But in this case, there's a bush that's burning, and yet it isn't burned. So there's no charring. There's no smoking embers. And so Moses is intrigued, and he goes over to take a look. And as he does, God calls out to him from the bush. Verse 5, then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now here we have a paradox of sorts. On one hand, Moses is called, isn't he? Which, which, which is every time you're called, it's an invitation to come near. And yet at the same time, he's also warned, don't come near. It's like, Moses, come here, but don't come here. He's instructed now to take his sandals off because the place on which he is standing is now holy ground. This is now the first time in the Old Testament where the word holy is used in reference to God. And that's important. We're learning something about who God is in this moment. Now that word holiness, we often think about it first in terms of moral categories. Like for someone to be holy, it means they're righteous. They do good and right things. And and that's true. Holiness does have that involved in it, but that's not the full encompassment of what that word means. Holiness means that something is set apart. See, this ground is no longer ordinary Midian dirt. It is that, but it is now set apart. It is being separated, distinguished from the other Midian dirt around it. Now this dirt becomes holy because why? It's now the place of God's manifest presence. God has decided to appear here and dwell here in a way that his omnipresence isn't happening all over the world. This little plot of land right now where Moses is standing has the very presence of God and Moses should not treat it as it as common as regular old Midian dirt. He is supposed to approach it with the kind of holiness and reverence that God's presence demands. In other words, Moses needed to have an awareness of this moment. That this moment, this place was different. It was set apart. It was holy. Something special is happening and Moses shouldn't treat it glibly. He shouldn't approach God's presence um, kind of casually and unaware. He's about to meet with the Lord in a personal and intimate way. And this caution from God is for Moses to recognize that God is holy and he's also glorious, that he is interacting with something different. See, God is holy in that he is utterly set apart from everything that he has made. There is none like him. Now, holiness, I said earlier, includes righteousness, but it goes further to speak of his otherness That's why he is so completely righteous, because he is distinct from us. There is no one like the Lord. In fact, later, Moses will even sing of the Lord's holiness in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is Moses' song. And you're going to find a lot of really good theology in there. And in that song, he says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Where did he learn that holiness? This day, right here. Awesome and glorious deeds, right? Today, this day, he starts to see these awesome, glorious things of the Lord. Doing wonders. Now the Lord introduces himself. And he tells Moses that he is the very same God that his father, Amram, worshipped. That makes a personal connection, right? And then with the three names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He tells Moses that he is the same covenant-making, promise-keeping God of his forefathers. It's amazing. You can just say those names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what should happen, and what particularly happens with an oral culture like this, is all of those stories start flooding back. The life of Abraham starts to play in his mind. The life of Isaac starts to play in his mind. The life of Jacob starts to play in his mind. And he gets a, he, in that moment, he gets this, this, um, this picture and this memory of who this God is. And in response, Moses hides his face. He is rightly sensing the proper fear and terror that God's holiness requires. Friends, often we reduce God to something other than holy. We, we reduce him to this figure that we can just casually approach i think we've lost our sense of the fear of the lord we do not properly acknowledge him as god almighty and moses is instructive for us here he senses the reality that it is dangerous and i mean i I, i'm using that word very 
It is dangerous for sinful human beings to glibly and casually draw too near to the Lord. He's holy. We cannot approach him as we would approach anything else in the world. Moses is also struck by the glory of the Lord. Notice, this is not the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, is it? This is not the God of your imagination or a God you can control. In a few few verses, God will tell Moses more about himself, but before he does, he shows him. This whole image of the burning bush reveals something about the character and nature of the Lord. It's no wonder that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses would say, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Where did he learn that God was a fire? Right here. He's like, when I first met him, he was all ablaze. Fire will become a persistent manifestation of the Lord throughout Exodus as he leads Israel by a pillar of fire and at night. This miracle in the burning bush also shows a power that the Lord has over creation to cause a bush to burn without being consumed. The very fact of that speaks to God's own eternity and self-sufficiency. Listen to Philip Ryken. Like the burning bush, God never runs out of fuel. His glory never dims. His beauty never fades. He always keeps burning bright. This is because God does not get his energy from anyone or anything outside himself. He is completely self-existent and self-sufficient in his eternal being. Do you know why things are consumed when they're burned? It's because the thing that is being burned is the fuel of that fire. And once the fuel of that runs out, what happens? The fire goes out. It ne- that's why you have to constantly keep feeding a fire. But this is a fire that needs no fuel. It has its own self-existent, self-perpetuating energy. God doesn't need anything outside of himself. That's, that, that's the lesson he's learning, that God is self-sufficient and eternal. And most of all, this experience altogether just gives Moses a glimpse of the glory of God. So it begs the question, what is the glory of God? John Piper's kind of spent his whole life thinking about the glory of God, and he writes this. The glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness, his other than otherness, on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. In other words, friends, the glory of God is All of his attributes, all of who he is made visible in a way that we can comprehend, in a way that we can uh, experience and, and see. It's the manifold perfection of God on display. Here Moses is getting a taste, a glimpse of God's manifold perfections. He's introduced to his holiness. He gets a glimpse of his awesome power and his nature. In fact, I think it's this experience that sparks a future conversation that we'll get to in Exodus 33 and 34 where Moses says, God, will you show me your glory? Like this is a taste and later he's like, I want more. I want more of your glory. Here in this first encounter with God at the burning bush, he gets a taste of his glory. And Amu's bush, anyone ever heard that term, Amu's bush? Chris, also not surprised. It's a French term. It literally means a mouth amuser. Now think of the word amusement. What is that? Well, the goal of amusement is to pleasantly capture your attention, to keep you paying attention. So through sensory input, your, your attention, your senses are awakened and they're fixed with a desire for more. Now, if you go to the 99 today, you may get a good lunch, but I promise you, you're not going to get an amuse-bouche. They, they don't serve that there. To get an amuse-bouche, you've got to go to a fancy restaurant. It's the kind on, like, the Google reviews that have the, the four or five dollar marks on it, okay? It's expensive. This, the, these are the kind of restaurants where the chef's name and, like, picture are up. You know what I mean? 
his reputation or her reputation is associated with this meal. An amuse bouche is it's it's different from appetizers. Appetizers are things you order, right? So you can eat more food. This is not something you can order. It's something that is served free decided on by the chef that he brings to you to say, hey, this is what I'm about. These are some of the flavors you can expect today. I I want you to get a taste, a preview of what's to come. The hope, the goal with an amuse-bouche is that you go, I cannot wait for the rest of this meal. It prepares you. It gives you a glimpse of the chef's style It tells you, here are the flavors and things you can expect. In other words, get ready for all that I have for you. Moses has gotten that. He has gotten a taste of the glory of God. And you see throughout the rest of his life, he wants more. He wants more. God is a God of glory. Second, God is a God of deliverance. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. In the next several verses, Moses learns that this holy, awesome, glorious God has come for a purpose. That he is now ready to deliver his people. What what Abraham foresaw in Genesis 15 is now coming to pass. Let me remind you what God told Abraham in Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So now 400 years have passed and the fullness of time has come for the Israelites' affliction to end. In other words, the time for their exodus is now. The time has come for them to be delivered and to inherit this land. And we learn in these verses that this promised land is inhabited by several different people groups. It's not sitting unoccupied, which means two things. Number one, that the land was desirable because many people are fighting for it. All these people in this land, they don't get along. They all are clamoring for this land. Why? Well, it's a land that's characterized by milk and honey, fatness and sweetness. It's a land that people want. These are all good things. And two, it's foreshadowing that it's going to take some work to make this land theirs, which foreshadows the future conquest in the book of Joshua. But more than that, what we learn in these verses is that God is a God of deliverance. He says that he sees his people. He hears their cries and he knows their sufferings. Where the Pharaoh of Exodus 1, if you remember, did not know Joseph, remember that? And did not give regard for the people. Here we see a second mention that the Lord knows their sufferings. We saw at the end of Exodus 2. That's how it ends. And God knew. And hear it again. Uh, The Lord says to, to, to Moses, I know them. I know their sufferings. Listen to this rather long but beautiful quote from J.I. Packer in his magnum opus, Knowing God. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis... The fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlines it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me and is there, and there is no moment when his eyes off of me. Or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This, Packer goes on to say, is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort. The sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates. By the way, I had to look up what that word enervates means. It means to drain energy. So energy is the increase of energy. Enervate is draining energy. So he's saying... 
Knowing that God knows me energizes me. And knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. In other words, he's saying, God knows all of you, your past, your present, your future, and none of that has disillusioned him from knowing and loving you. There's never a moment in his knowledge of you where his care can falter. He's not going to fumble his caretaking of you. There's no moment where his eye is off of you. So that impulse in us to go, maybe God doesn't see me. Maybe God doesn't hear me. Packer is saying that that could never be further from the truth. He always sees you. He always hears you. He is always actually caring for you. That gives us unspeakable comfort in the reality that God knows his people. He is always intimately aware of our suffering. And friends, he is always moved to do something about it. Be it in his timing and his way. Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Friends, if you have taken refuge in the Lord... He knows you. God is a God of deliverance who doesn't stay disconnected and distant like the God of moralistic therapeutic deism. He is involved. In fact, Exodus 3 says he comes down to our level. He says, I have come down. Brian Rosner in his book, I love the title, How to Find Yourselves, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. He writes this. Psychologist Maureen Minor likens God to the ideal parent who offers his children his loving attention and secure attachment that provides a safe haven and a secure base from which to engage the world. He goes on to say, it seems that being known by God can help provide a stable and secure identity. Not unlike that which good parents hope to give their young children. Being known by God meets our deepest need to be acknowledged and valued when such things are most needed. Friends, God sees you. He hears you. He knows you, which all speak to the reality that God loves you. You could just as well replace the word knows with the word loves, that God knows you and loves you. And because he loves you, he could never be disconnected and distant from his people He draws near to the brokenhearted because he is a compassionate deliverer. As God is telling Moses, I have come to deliver my people, that should put in our theology that God is a God of deliverance. Third, God is a God of presence. Verse 10, come, the Lord says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So far, Moses is tracking with the Lord. Everything sounds good. Like, God, you're going to come and you've come down. You're going to deliver your people. This all sounds amazing. But in verse 10, God says, by the way, Moses, I'm going to send you. In other words, it's like the the screech happens on the, the record player. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I'm going? What do you mean, me? God is on mission, and what is he doing? He's inviting Moses into that mission. Just think about what God is asking of Moses. Remember, Moses is an octogenarian. He's 80 years old. And he's saying, Moses, in your oldness, go back to Egypt, face your adopted family, face your past, and most of all, face the new Pharaoh and convince him to let his labor force go. So quite naturally, Moses says, Well, who am I? Moses is recognizing I'm a nobody. I may have been somebody way back when, but that was a long time ago. He commands no army. He has no power to just walk into Egypt and start making demands of the most powerful man in the world. Verse 12. God says, I will be with you. 
And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people of, out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So Moses asks, who am I? God says, I will be with you. Now, if you're just tracking that question literally, it sounds like a non-answer, doesn't it? Moses is asking, who am I? The, the expectation is that God is going to tell Moses about who he is, right? Who am I? I will be with you. Seems like there's a disconnect. How does it help Moses to know who he is because God is with them? Like if, if we were there and Moses said, who am I? We would have probably said something different. We would have said, Moses, I know it's been a long time, but you are in fact a prince of Egypt. You were adopted into the royal court. You know the people suffering. Like you can be a good deliverer because you are compassionate. You, 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 you've seen how hard it is to be an Egyptian. And now you've been in the wilderness. You've been preparing for this moment your whole life. Look inside yourself. Discover the deliverer within. Something along those lines would be how we would have helped Moses in that moment. But God speaks a better word. He says, look at me, Moses. Look at me. My presence will go with you. And that changes everything. You, in other words, your identity will change when you recognize that God is with you. God is saying, my presence will give your life meaning. My presence will give you a stabilizing and secure identity. My presence will make the difference. Tim Chester says, Moses does not need a higher self-esteem he needs a greater sense of God's presence. And friends, I would say in our lives, what you need most is not a greater appreciation for who you are and all the good skill sets you have. And, and friend, you guys are a very skilled people, intelligent, bright, capable, able group of people. But what you need most is not a greater awareness of your greatness, but a greater awareness of God's great presence who goes with you all throughout the rest of this encounter with the lord moses is continue to consider the weight and difficulty of the task at hand it's, this conversation is going to go on even beyond today's sermon but god tells him i i will never send you without going with you isn't that unbelievable god never sends us without going with us his presence with us is what makes the difference when you look around, you go, how, how, am, how is my marriage going to last? Well, his presence with you. How am I going to raise these children? Well, it's his presence with you. How am I going to share the gospel with that person at work? His presence with you. How am I going to lead these, these youth and this youth group to, uh, to, to have a, an understanding and appreciation of the Lord? His presence with you. Whatever the task is at hand, it is his presence with you. That makes the difference. Moses was right. He recognizes his own inadequacy, but Moses' inadequacy is shored up by what? The adequacy and ability of the Lord who goes with him. Friends, God does not call us to the work of the gospel because he is looking for capable people. If he were waiting to find capable people, he would just keep looking None of us are capable of this work on our own. But it's his presence with us that overcomes and beautifully overwhelms all of our inabilities and incapacities. And the reason he does that is so that we still get to be a part of the work and yet he is the one who still gets the glory. God is a God of glory. He's a God of deliverance. He's a God of presence. And fourth, he is the God who is Verse 13, then God, Moses said to God, okay, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what do I say? So Moses says, okay, let's just say for the sake of the argument that I do in fact go back to Egypt and I go to the people of God and say, hey, I met the Lord in the wilderness. Um, he wants me to help lead you out of Egypt what happens when they say, well, what's his name? Who, who actually sent you? See, they might be skeptical. They might say, well, who, who was this God? Like, oh, tell us more about that interaction. And so Moses is saying, what do I tell them? Now, it's important to note, so far in biblical history, 
different aspects of God's nature have been highlighted by the different names of God. So in Genesis 14, you have the El Elyon, the God Most High. Genesis 16, um, the God who sees me, El Roy. Um, In Genesis 17, you have God Almighty, El Shaddai. In Genesis 21, you have God Everlasting, El Olam, and so on. So there's all these moments where a a name of God or, or an aspect of God's nature is highlighted by a different name of God. So perhaps Moses is wondering, Lord, are you going to reveal another one of those names to me now? Like, like you're the God of deliverance because that's what's about to happen? Or are you, gonna, uh, are you one of those other names? Like Moses, there, there's reason for Moses to be asking, like, what is your name? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, Moses says, what is your name? God says, I am who I am. Now, I would like to argue that this is more than just the commonplace phrase like it is what it is, which everything is what it is. And so it's really not saying anything particularly helpful. But what God is saying right now is more than that. He's not just saying like, you know, I am who I am, like whatever. No, he is making a fantastic and beautiful statement. In Hebrew, I am who I am sounds like this. Ayah, asher, ayah. In other words, God is saying, I am the God who was, is, and evermore will be. That word ayah is the Hebrew word to be. It's like the, the is. Now, this word, depending on the context, can be translated I was. It can be translated I am. It can be translated I will be. And there's a little bit of mystery here. So what I think God is doing here is he's saying, I am the God who was, is, and evermore will be. I am the self-defining God. You can count on me to be true to who I am. Nothing influences me or persuades me. I cannot be manipulated. I cannot be controlled. I always, always act in accordance with my nature. I am completely sufficient. I am who I am. I am the God who is, I am who I am. And then he goes on and says, tell them I am or Ayah has sent you. This is the shortened version of I am who I am. And then he tells them, tell them the Lord. And in your Bibles, when you see the Lord, like it's capitalized, capital L-O-R-D, that is in Hebrew, Yahweh. And that word Yahweh grammatically is linked to that. And so in, in a trifold way, he is basically saying the same thing. I am who I am. This word Yahweh becomes kind of the nominal or the naming version of the verb. It's like taking the verb and making it a noun. That's what Yahweh basically is. And Yahweh becomes the name that God reveals and says, this will be my name forever. More names of God will step onto the biblical scene more time, there will be other times where God is, a particular uh, aspect of his nature is highlighted. Because friends, like, our language is limited and God is infinite. And so, of course, there would be these many names of God. But this name, his covenantal name, is one that is to be remembered forever. There's a particular specialness about this name, Yahweh. I think it's trying to capture as best as could be possible the, the glory and beauty and splendor of God in, in, in one name. Yahweh is the God who is. And if you're like me, when I, at this point in Exodus 3, I'm like, but I still have so many questions. I still don't know all that that entails. And, and it's like an, an invitation to go keep reading. In other words, the rest of Exodus is going to be like an exposition on the name of God. It's a name that is just waiting for a bunch of meaning to be imported into it. And we're supposed to read the rest of the biblical story and go, like, the more I learn about who God is, that meaning I attach to the name Yahweh. That's who God is. It's brilliant to give us basically an empty canvas And allow the rest of the biblical story to paint out this picture of who God is.
The rest of the story will paint a picture. It will fill in the gaps and we will come to know more of who Yahweh is. This, this great I am, the God who was, is, and evermore will be. This uh, God is a God of glory. He's a God of deliverance, presence, and promise. And finally, let's see this last point that he is a God of promise. Verse 16. So Moses says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, that's our God of promise right there, that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the promised land. Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters. And so you shall plunder the Egyptians. In these final verses, the Lord is giving Moses instruction on not only what he's supposed to say, but a preview of what's going to happen. And he does so by saying, I promise, I promise that all of these things are going to happen. In other words, he's telling Moses that I am on the move. The Lord is on the move and I'm going to deliver my people out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. He tells them, Pharaoh's gonna make things difficult for you, but don't worry, I'm gonna make things difficult for him through many signs and wonders, so much in fact, that I will compel him to comply by my mighty hand. And as you leave, people are going to just start throwing jewelry and clothing on you such that you'll be able to dress your children up in splendor. He's not going to deliver them as some poor, broke-down people, but they are going to, to plunder Egypt on the way out the door. And notice what he does. He attaches his name, his character, and his reputation to his deliverance by making a promise. See, God's not obligated to deliver them. He didn't have to move, but the moment he says, I promise, what happens? He now is obligated to them. Why? Because that's what happens when you make a promise. Isn't that what happens? When you tell someone, I promise, you are, in other words, binding yourself to that other person. You're putting your character, your name, your reputation on the line with that word of promise and saying, I, prom I, I am binding myself to do this very thing. And promise making, friends, is a part of the character and nature of God. He does not have to make any promises to us, but he does. He obligates himself to us. This isn't the first promise that God has made, and it won't be the last. Why? Because God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping kind of God. One of the reasons we're instructed to read God's word is that we would see over and over again that God is making and keeping promises. This making and keeping promises, this repetition is meant to convince our hearts to believe in him and to take him at his word. So often we are more convinced by the circumstances of things around us than the word of his promise. Don't we do this? We look around and say, listen, there's just no way that God is going to redeem this situation. It's unredeemable. There's no way that God will forgive this sin. There's no way that God's going to come back again. We start to doubt the promises of God because we look around at our circumstances. And these promises that we see made and fulfilled in the scriptures are meant to teach our hearts to go, no, no, no. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And you can believe it and you can build your life on it. It's in these moments where we rehearse the promises of God in order to overwhelm our doubts. And friends, in the coming chapters, Moses is going to need to remember that conversation because things are going to get difficult. It's going to look like Pharaoh's never going to let the people go. 
and yet he needed to rely on the fact that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping kind of God. This is a flyover of Genesis 3. There's much more that could be said, but it's a masterclass in the character and nature of the God of glory, the God of deliverance, this God of intimate presence, that he is the God who is, and he is a God of promise. I would encourage you to put those categories in your mind and consider each of those attributes this week as you take the theology of Exodus 3 and you practically apply it into the everyday stuff of your life. So here's some examples of what that could look like. Would you consider what fears that you're facing right now that could be replaced by faith as you consider who God is? Like what things are you terrified of or anxious of right now that could be diminished Replaced by faith as you consider that God is a God of glory, that he's a God of promise keeping. What sin right now are you struggling with that seems so satisfying that now compared to the glory and beauty of God would seem so unsatisfying? To go, Lord, I I don't want anything that would keep me from you. You see how you take theology and you practically apply it to your life. What suffering are you experiencing right now that could be comforted to know that God sees you, that he knows you, that he hears you, and that he is a God of deliverance and who will, in his timing and his way, bring deliverance? What promises of God speak a better word than your doubts today? See, believe it or not, we've only skimmed the surface of the depths of this chapter. We haven't even dove into the beautiful waters of how all of these attributes of God find fulfillment in Christ Jesus. But let me give you a taste, an amush bush. Remember John 1. John tells us that Jesus, the word, become flesh who dwelt, came to dwell among us. And John tells us that he is full of glory. The same glory that God has in Exodus 3, Jesus has as well. He is the glorious son of God, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the great deliverer who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the presence of God. What is his name? We always say it at Christmas time. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus is the great I am, who over and over throughout the gospel of John says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Jesus is the same great I am. This is our God who delivers us for devotion. 